Hello and welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast, where we explore Holocaust-related topics during the time of our new virtual reality. I'm your host, Sarah Valente, Visiting Assistant Professor of Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. I'm Niels Romer, Interim Dean of the School of the Arts and Humanities, Director of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies, and Barbara Anstan Raven, Professor of Holocaust Studies. I'm so excited to introduce Portraits of World War II, a new three-part series starting today. In this series, Dr. Roman and I sat down to talk to three remarkable individuals and discuss the impact of World War II in their childhoods and lives. Our special guests, Dr. Rainer Schulte, Professor Frederick Turner, and Dr. Jojana Oshvath, are longtime legends at the University of Texas at Dallas, beloved professors at the School of Arts and Humanities, and brilliant scholars in their fields. Today's episode features Dr. Rainer Schulte. Next Sunday, August 9th, we will feature Professor Frederick Turner. And on August 16th, we will feature Dr. Jujana Oshvath. We hope that you will join us for this three-part series and enjoy our conversation. I'm pleased to present our first guest, Dr. Rainer Schulte. He is endowed professor of arts and humanities, the director of the Center for Translation Studies, which he founded in 1980, and the editor of Translation Review, the only journal devoted exclusively to the art and craft of translation, which he established in 1978. That same year, he also co-founded the American Literary Translators Association, known as OTA, to support the work of literary translators and to advance the art of literary translation. Alta has grown to be the largest gathering of literary translators in the United States, bringing together nearly 500 translators, writers, and editors at its annual conference. Dr. Schulte is a specialist in comparative literature, in contemporary international literature, and in interdisciplinary studies in the arts and humanities. He has translated poetry and fiction of writers from Latin America, Germany, and France. Dr. Schulte's creative foresight has established the paradigm of translation as the foundation for the study of literature and the arts. His publications include several books of poetry, translation criticism, literary translations, and numerous essays and scholarly articles on contemporary international writers and the application of translation methodologies to the interpretation of literary and humanistic texts. His most recent monograph, Traveling Between Languages, the Geography of Translation and Interpretation, demonstrates how translation methodologies can promote the reading and interpretation of literary and humanistic texts and foster interdisciplinary thinking and research. Dr. Schulte encourages his students to become creative thinkers, to take risks, and to critically think not what does a text mean, but how does the text come to mean. Dr. Schulte is always pushing the field of translation studies towards the future, most recently with courses on translation in the age of digital humanities and a new forthcoming podcast to be launched later this month. On a personal note, Dr. Schulte is one of the kindest people I know, and it is my honor to welcome him to be at the Ackerman Center podcast in conversation with Dr. Romer and I today. Hello, Dr. Valente. Thank you for having Hello, us. Hello, Dr. Valente. Thank you both for being here. I'm really excited to have both of you joining me at the Ackerman Center podcast today. So, Dr. Schulte, would you please begin by telling us when and where you were born? 
Well, I was born in a very small town called Zimmern, which is about 100 kilometers west of Frankfurt. It is also very close, which became a major plague, maybe. It's also very close to the uh, uh, Flugplatz Hahn, the airport Hahn, the airport Hahn. which yeah. was one of the major uh, airports for the American army. But it was mm -hmm. all at the beginning. And these planes from the airport from Hahn, which was 30 kilometers, they were continuously flying over our house. And frequently they would fly at a thousand feet above the house, which is very low. And then they would break the, um, what do you call it, they break the sound barrier. And when the sound barrier was broken, then if you didn't have your windows open, then the windows would be broken. Wow. So that, that was one of the first things. Sometimes they would announce that they were coming and sometimes they would not. And there were generally about two or three at the same time. Now, that was also before the 1945, when I was seven years old. That was also the place where the bombs by the American army were coming down. And there was a huge valley uh, in front of our house. And there were about, over the time, there were about a thousand bombs that were deposited there. And so, so I, just, I just did a quick little math, um, which means you were born in 1938? Yeah. No, so, 37, you know, hold it. 37, 37. So, okay, 37. So, um, one thing that I find always kind of curious if one would have thought of, of you as having been born 1937 and now thinks about you where you are right now, then it would be fair to say that having been born in 1937 would not have particularly you know, meant that you would end up in Dallas. So there's, you know, lots of ways in that moment, the future is, is very distant. And it's not like that. It's, it's like all kind of coming out of that. You were caught in a very particular moment, um, just on the cusp, just two years away from the breakout of the Second World War, but obviously already in the midst of the National Socialist uh, regime. Um, Hitler had come to power in 1933. One of the things that, you know, divides us in lots of ways is when you talk about Han and your memories, my memories of Han are discount flights across Europe. Yes. Because a military yes. Uh, yes, yes, airport yes. was at some point abundant. And, and so Twen my memory of that is, is entirely different. It's yes. 29, flights, 29, yeah. 29 euros from Han to London and back. Exactly. Okay. So uh, <laughs> I'm keenly tuned into this. However, so, but Han, let's, Han no longer exists. So, but that's obviously um, just, you know, shows you how the memory of some things are not even any longer really maintained, but are quickly overwritten by new memories, oh, yeah. fond memories of vacations yeah. and the like. But what we want to go back to is, is really growing up, um, you know, being quite young, um, you know, born in 37. Do you have any distinct memories at all? Um, that you recall to this day? Oh, yeah, I do. Because, the war period? Yeah, the six and seven and eight years were the critical years where yeah, the one thing that we continuously had to avoid the bombs. And I learned how to, when I sat outside of the house, I could tell 
the phosphor bombs were the most dangerous one and you had to run because if they were going to hit you, you were gone because it would just eat your meat. Yeah. And then the other part was that the Americans wanted to, there was a railroad track and a crossing and the Americans wanted to hit this. Mm. And they dropped all the bombs and was never the connection, the interchange was never never destroyed. And so the, these are, there was a tunnel and then obviously the Americans thought there was all kinds of explosive in the tunnel, so the tunnel was also... But we spent most of those days, we spent those in the bunker. Mm-hmm. And the bunker... So that was my question, because you grew up in a small town, you nonetheless had bunkers or shelters where you regularly were, were hiding in particular. I mean, your memory is probably most vivid from, let's say, 43 onwards. Oh, yeah. We, 43, 44. The bunker was uh, on the other side of the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And for me or us to get there... We had to run down the hill and into the cemetery and across the river, the Zeman River. And right then was this. And the problem was sometimes if we didn't jump correctly, you ended up in the, in the creek, mm. which did happen. And the other one was that frequently when we ran, we were surprised by the bombs. And then both my older brother and I would just leave life flat in the grass and at one point, he missed one of the big things uh, about five centimeters from his head. So that was a oh. continuous thing. And we spent a lot of time also in the house before the American army came. Mm-hmm. And that was reinforced. So every time the bombs came, the whole house would shake. And there's this really interesting story that I've heard you tell a few times about um, your first interaction with the American soldiers. Oh, that was funny. Would that you like to tell us? Funny. Yes. <laughs> The American army, now I look back and I see they were obviously very young, but the American army came, the colonel came to the house and said, you have 20 minutes to get out. The Americans came actually when, when um, uh, I, I was, when the occupation came, I was in another very small village, which was Schwarzerden. And there we... The Americans came eight days earlier than expected there. Okay. And so the German Nazis, the army had not retreated. So the army then, they, they put on fire all of their cars, uh, panzer, what is that? Panzer is... Uh, tanks. Tanks, yes. And everything. So you had about 10 kilometers of burning cars, tanks, support and whatever else. And then that was my first experience with an American uh, interact with a tank. The tank all of a sudden came up to the house where we were. And this huge man, he must have been six, seven, gets out of there and holds the gun at me. And I was then exactly seven. He holds the gun at me. And obviously, I had no idea. You know, I froze. And then... We communicated ultimately, and he wanted the eggs that the chickens had laid. So there were 12 eggs that day. So I gave him the 12 eggs, and once he had his 12 eggs, he pulled his machete there, what we called, back, and he disappeared in the tank and just drove off. And at the same time, which obviously the German army was surprised, 
So a lot of the soldiers, all of a sudden, they appeared in the private houses, mm -hmm. took off their uh, uh, uniforms, the uniforms, right, and asked for jackets and pants. Mm -hmm. So then all of a sudden, they were regular ones. And when the army came, they, at that time, they didn't go house to house to house. But that burning went on for at least 10 days. So, so in, in lots of ways, you have that last kind of marker will burn everything to make it harder for the American advance while already some soldiers are, so to speak, shedding their, their uniforms in order to, to blend in. So you have like, you know, the, the, the end and the new beginning yeah. almost tied exactly yeah. into each other there. Yeah. I should tell you that we thought it would be safer to go to this small village, but since the German army had not retreated, it became a real battle, battleground. So people were dead in front of the house mm -hmm. and, I mean, shut down. And at that time, however, before that, we were in another bunker, and that's the other story. So there was a huge valley And the Americans came on one side and the bunker was on this side. And because it was all so fast, they thought that the bunker was full of Nazis. But the bunker was full of 500 Germans, children and so on. And all kinds of things happened. They, my aunt thought you were safe if you, took, if you took cold coffee and you spread it over your head. I mean, there were all these crazy things. Well, anyway, my mother was quite ingenious. And she decided something had to be done because of the shooting was going on there. And so she went and collected all the small uh, white handkerchiefs, I mean, the, and put them together. Uh, you know that story. You put them together, and then we had a pint of pole. She put them all on the pole. And then they had to get out, and there were some men, in, and the men refused to go out. So my brother, my mother wanted to go out first. She said, no, her sister said, you can't, you have four kids. And so my older brother took the thing, opened the door and ran out. And at that time, a bunch of bullets came right next to his ear. And so he fell against the ground, which is then like this. And at that time, the, uh, the, bombing, the, the shooting stopped. And then we came out. Would you be willing to read us the poem, Dr. Schulte, about the moment oh, the one. The, we are women and children? Oh, that's when we came out of the bunker. Yes, please. When the Americans, yes. the Americans had stopped uh, shooting. We are women and children. A blue sky cut the day into fear. We are women and children. Crouched in the deep depths of a bomb shelter, sweating silent cries into dark echoes. We are women and children. Bullets begin to scream through the valley and resound in frozen faces of fear. We are women and children. A white flag of desperation silences the bullets. We are women and children. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, my first question is, 
you wrote this in English, but knowing you, you probably also have a German version of this poem. Uh, I, almost all of my volumes of poetry are in English. So okay. there's, there's somewhere, there are some in German that I wrote for the occasion somewhere in Germany. When did you begin to write poetry about your time as a child during World War II? Well, that's a very good question, which I don't remember. But uh, I, I have it had all along. The writing of the poetry was particularly keen when I first came to the United States. And then there's a whole sequence of uh, poems about the piano. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, then the, 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 war, the whole war poems, there are quite a few war poems. And uh, then uh, there are three or four volumes. So how many siblings did you have, Rainer? We were four. Which would have meant that as soon as you were liberated by the Americans, your mom had essentially one other big worry on her mind from here on forward, food. Oh yeah. Do you remember anything about oh, God, I mean, this was I. a particular <laughs> horrible winter in that year? Yes, it uh, was. 45 to 46. Yeah, see, then we went back to Zimmern. Okay. And then in Zimmern, we thought we were in the house, and that's when the American occupation came. And that's what I said before. The, the colonel came and said, we have 20 minutes to get out. But there are all kinds of stories mm -hmm. that, because we didn't have enough food, so uh, one of the stories that I will never forget is the elderly people, you would get a piece of bread, but then the bread was so hard that they couldn't eat. So we would walk behind the elderly people because we knew we were going to get the piece of bread. Oh. Yeah, so that was one. And then by contemporary standards, legal standards, I should be in prison because I started stealing. I think everyone was stealing right <laughs> after the war, right? Um, what were you stealing? <laughs> Potatoes, chocolate? Well, well, the ch chocolate I stole Hershey when I gave the Kush good choice. Uh, good, but, you know, one should be, you know, mindful in stealing as well. Hershey, yeah, well, I realize now one. the the American soldiers were not supposed they were not supposed to talk with us, mm -hmm. but they liked us, the kids walking by, and so all of a sudden we figured out that if the shoes of, there were two soldiers with the guns on each part of the door, of the entrance door. And then we figured out when their shoes were like this together, we were, we just walked by, then smiled into, but when they were like this, we could start talking. And so that's how the, uh, and then they also knew, I would climb in at the back of the house to get the the Hershey chocolate but I also got an orange and I was trained for explosives and I thought the orange mm. was an explosive so I carried that we lived at that time six people in two rooms uh, what does it mean you were trained for explosives that meant what do you mean? We, we, did, did, did you learn how to differentiate them or oh yeah you, you learn when we walked for example when you walked mm -hmm. through grass you made sure the, the, where the explosives were. The, the, okay. Yeah. And so a lot of people, a lot of men, for example, lost their legs. Mm. Just, psh, yeah. And so, 
So one thing that is always really difficult for, for many to kind of think about when we look back is you are in your own life, you are on the one side, memories are still very much about the air raids and the, the bombs. And then the next thing is Hershey bars. Mm-hmm. And so it just seems almost as if you move from one quickly <laughs> into the other. But as of late, we've learned that obviously Germany in a larger way in 45 didn't just simply awake from a, oh, from no, a dark no. night, no. but that in many ways the change, in particular also in smaller towns, were often quite painful because one locally would have remembered very well who had been what and respectively who had done whatever they had done. So do you have any memories of conflicts after 45? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, the the conflict was, I mean, just to go back to my own house, my mother was a teacher as an asocial school. That means kids who had been abused by their parents, kids who had been, the parents had been killed and so on. And when she was there before 1940, she taught many years, there was a Nazi guy. So he did everything he could to annoy my mother, to say the least. And so here comes when the 8th of May came. Then from one day, everything changed. And then all of a sudden, that Nazi bastard, excuse me, the Nazi bastard came to the house and wanted to sell soap so he could make some money. Yeah, I mean, these are the little stories. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, but that's in particular in these very small quarters and smaller towns. This is exactly, you know, what, where these differences still were, were tangible and were often um, experienced. You talk about your, your, um, your older brother and your mother. How about your father? He was at that time a prisoner. He, he, was, uh, he had to join the army in 19... 19- I think 43. Okay. And the reason was he didn't want to. And then my aunt, who also lived with us, she said, you have a wife and four kids. Otherwise, they were going to be shot. I mean, if you didn't join the army, you were going to be killed. So he went and was immediately taken prisoner by the Americans in Norway. And I should also tell you, he never said anything about anything. And so then... He was transported. Do you remember the name Bretzenheim? No, I don't. Yeah, Bretzenheim was one of the worst uh, cam- prison camps that the Americans had near Kreuznach. You know Bad Kreuznach? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's Bad Kreuznach, Bingen, and Frankfurt. Uh, and they, it was during the winter, as you originally mentioned, there was no cover. And so when the snow came down and the rain came down, people just, soldiers just died one after the other. And then my mother, who was a little, she had a sixth sense. She realized all of a sudden there was 30 kilometers from where we lived at the house. And so she decided to go that day and bring some food. So she was outside and the closer she came, the American soldier said, if you get one more foot, well, we have to shoot you. So she threw food <laughs> over the fence that then my father did get because he responded. But there was also the day that my father had been, that the Americans had said, the French are looking for people who can work at their farms. So that day, 
he was transported in open wagons, and I say this for another reason, to France. And whenever there was a bridge later on, especially when they came to French, people were standing on top and were throwing this big mm -hmm. stones on them so they could kill a few Germans. And then he was part of a farmhouse, and they hated the Germans more than anything else. So they made sure he wasn't getting enough to eat. So the only way he, he survived was that he found in the barn a nest for, from the chickens. So every day he, he ate five to six raw eggs. If you don't mind, let, let's just... Um, so you're born in 37 in Germany. You experienced the, the air raids, then the liberation by the Americans. And then somewhere in the middle, you found your love for literature. How does that work? I mean, the, the one doesn't necessarily lead into the other. That well, you think no. The, if you, the, if the you real... grew up in the way you did, you yeah. would have, you know, maybe parents would have said, learn something useful, something that has a future, <laughs> right? Um, but it was but... even less useful because I started when I was uh, rightly, right after then. I started to do the piano. And there was Herr Keller who came from Cologne because they couldn't find any food there. So he came from Cologne and then he was looking for uh, new whatever. Uh, Source of incomes yeah, to make and money. So I became, I was the second person as his pupil for piano. And since there were not very much, we got tremendous attention. He worked with me sometimes two, three hours on the piano. And then, uh, I, then we had the performances. And I still have those programs somewhere. We had the performances, but since there was no light in the buildings, and they were all trümmer, mostly. Ones. Uh, yeah, so, so we would have the performances with candles. Yeah. And that's how yeah. I got into this. Wow. And then my highlight was when I was 16, 17 years old, that's when I played the Appassionata. Hmm. So that was, that's, uh, and then obviously the next thing uh, was that I got the, uh, later on, I got the Fulbright to Dickinson College. That's going to be uh, the, our second episode. I think we'll be exploring <laughs> that. Um, then, you know, how you, but what's the, I mean, Dr. Valente, you also play classical music and obviously you're interested in, in literature. Is there, a, is there a connection between your early interest in the piano and your interest in literature? Are you talking to me? Both of you. Oh. Oh. Yours first. I think there's definitely a connection. Um, and, you know, when you're thinking about, for example, when it comes to translation, I think that's actually the, the bigger connection between being able to read music because it is a language you know the moment you learn music you are essentially learning a new language it's a new form of thinking a new form of inter interpreting and so i definitely see the connection between the two areas of study and i think this is something actually that dr Schulte and i have talked about before um the question of how translation is so much part of that mechanism of playing an instrument that oftentimes we don't realize as you're playing, you know, I play the cello, he plays the piano. But if you're, if you're taking those kinds of skills from the music, from learning music, then you're able to kind of extend it to other fields. And in this case, you know, it would be translation, I would say, um, that we see it happening really well. 
the greatest, one of the greatest um, pianists in Germany was Gieser King. And uh, uh, he has written probably the best book on how to practice and interpret musical pieces. And uh, I, it has finally been translated into English. It's called the Gieser King Lima technique. But uh, because you, the, the important part is that you begin to understand what sound you want, what quality of sound do you want. And this is just to, you know, you can go like this. Well, that's the, that's the, 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 the or you can go. Mm -hmm. You know, so you, yeah, and that and that, that makes all the difference. Your interpretive perspective, and then it becomes your performance. And so that's why we say, you mm -hmm. know, this is Ben uh, Clyburn's playing this. I can generally tell when when I hear a recording from him. I said, oh, that's Van Clyburn. I can also tell when Brendel uh, is doing it, you know. And that's very important that each one of us, and that's also mm -hmm. when we interpret a work, it becomes your interpretive perspective. If we think about the moment after 45 that you already talked a little bit about it and so i'm wondering how long were they in your town in your house like at what point did your family was your family allowed to return home um, i think two or three years after okay. we were out yeah see the first time we came back we were in the house had it cleaned we don't talk about that part we cleaned it especially the basement and then we were in the house for two months and be thrown out again. Okay. And the next time it was uh, only two weeks, I believe. We were back in it and then we were thrown out again. So there was a period of two, three years. And I, and I also wonder about, you know, what was this experience on a family level? What, what were those discussions or if there was, because, you know, some families felt very guilty, other families felt like there was nothing to, to be ashamed of. Of course, there's all various um, reactions to this moment right um well what i can say is that uh, since my father was a prisoner mm -hmm. my mother had to survive yeah. so she was teaching my father was also a teacher before that so she was teaching two different places every day so she taught from eight to twelve and two to seven wow. uh, so there was and then my aunt was taking care of the house mm -hmm. There was very little possibility for whatever. And I worked at the farm and I had to get up at four in the morning and went to the farm. Mm -hmm. And that's where we got the food. Mm -hmm. 
I brought in the potatoes and the bread. And my older brother brought in the eggs and the meat. Wow. That's how we survived. That's incredible. And, you know, a lot of people just, just went berserk. And a lot of uh, people, especially men, they decided they hung themselves from the trees. So how does a kid get from Zimmer, Germany, to Dallas, Texas? Well, that's very easy. Since I had no money whatsoever, I applied for everything there was to be applied for. I could have ended up at the time in Russia or wherever. So I applied for Fulbright, and I got a Fulbright during my beginning years at the University of Mainz, Gutenberg Universität Mainz. And then at that time, I went to Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, But you have to realize that was at the time when it was not very nice to go to the United States because they were the enemies. And some of our best friends were spitting at us. That was not something you do. And I must say my mother was extremely forward-looking. She said, don't worry about it. And some, a matter of fact, the best friends of the family, they were spitting at us. Uh, and the other part was, since I was uneducated, in a sense, and there were no maps for the United States, I couldn't find the place where we're supposed to go. And so I got to know, that that's another story, and I'll make that very fast. It's my first trip on the boat, and the, the was the old Berlin, the last trip, the crossing of the old Berlin, and we ran into a huge storm, and... Uh, Instead of getting to New York on time, we got there two days later. And then once we get to New York, the, um, the person, one of the persons that was at the table, uh, this was not very nice because a lot of people during the storm were throwing up. And when we got to New York, one, one of the colleagues or one, another student was, uh, di- was supposed to have typhoid. And so nobody, I at the at the thing couldn't at the table couldn't get off. And when we got out in New York at one o'clock in the morning, I had no idea where I was, et cetera, et cetera. Then there was an encounter with the police, no, with the taxi driver, because the taxi driver wanted a more of a tip, which we didn't have. And so I said, if you go on, I had no idea what I was doing. I said, if you would go on, I will call the police on the corner. But that was at one thirty in the morning. <laughs> so that was my entrance in New York City. <laughs> But what year was that? 58. 58, okay. I was there from 58 uh, to the end of the summer of 59. And then I went back to the University of Mainz to finish my Staatsexam, which is corresponding to the Magister. And uh, then we had the first uh, program at the University of Mainz, the Gutenberg Universität for uh, American Studies, which at the time you have to realize there was a no-no because nobody was really interested in what the United States were doing culturally or literally speaking. And then I, once I was there, I got a TA ship to the University of Michigan and I was supposed to be there only for a year And then during that time, I met the great Austin Warren, who had written the theory of literature. And it was all very formal. So one day I stood in line like everybody else. 
And I got into his office and I said, Professor Warren, if I stayed here, would you direct my dissertation? And he said, yes, Mr. Shoulder. And that changed the life. I will never forget that. Yes, Mr. Shoulder. And then he was, you see, I, I didn't know. I had the faintest idea who he was. And so I signed up for his seminar. I had no idea who he was. And then the third sentence he pronounced, I thought, oh, Schulte, you better start listening. <laughs> yeah. that, that's wonderful. And I think you already mentioned something here that I wanted to explore a little bit further. What was life like for you when you first came to the U.S. as a German during that first trip and then during your second trip, which is the trip that kind of, you know, set you up in this country? I had no bad experience being a German in um, in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, Dickinson College. Uh, they were very nice to me, especially the elder ladies, because I would play piano for them. And so whenever they had a little gap together, they would call me and I play the piano. <laughs> If you don't, if you don't mind, let's go one more time back to your what you call your war poetry. Um, you know, in many ways, the idea of remembering the war, the air raids, and, and all of that is part of what German Germans would call part of the complicated memories, mm -hmm. because it has always been you know, difficult to remember um, the air raids, and to this day, we use all the shifting vocabulary between, you know, the Nazis being defeated. Germany being liberated, Germany being occupied, uh, freed. And so I think all those changing words indicate that, we, that we're never quite sure how to actually capture that particular moment and how to accord for the, you know, account for this in particular. So for you, I suspect your memories of the war and those poems that you wrote would have come quite late. Is that correct? That is correct. I... Uh... Obviously, when, when, the, when the occupation was, uh, the only thing you were thinking about, how to survive and find food. That was the major thing. And in order for that for me to happen, I worked at a farm, two farms, actually. And I had to get up at four or five in the morning. That's why I never get up again at four or five in the morning. And uh, the, uh, I think the changes came, actually, when all of a sudden on the horizon, Mr. Keller showed up and his wife these were the two musicians he the piano she the violinist and they came from cologne because they didn't have any food there so they came and started their life over this and i was either his first or his second student and the lovely part now looking back was that he spent an enormous amount of time with his first two students and then later on uh, an another one came into the picture so they were at the, at the school, there were two two uh, piano players, one and then Mr. Schlemper, who reconnected with me last year. He lives oh, in Germany oh, wow. on the Lake Constance. So, and the 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 issue was that it's it's very simple. the The primary school was pretty much. Close. I was supposed to have four years of primary school, had a year and two months. So, and then I wasn't at all interested really in pursuing this and because I wanted food, so I was working on the farm. And then with Mr. Keller coming into the picture, uh, things began to change. 
and then I started practicing every day. But that's your interest in, in piano and in classical music. Where does the interest in literature come from? Well, the interest in literature comes from that early on I, uh, I uh, was going to school in Grenoble, France. And I lived with a dentist family and his wife was one of the most cultivated people I encountered. And she uh, almost every day brought me another book. What year was this? Well, that's a good question. It must have been when I was, I would have to verify. I think I must have been maybe 16 years old. 16? Well, it was around that time because 16, 17 were the great uh, years for the piano. And then I was in France more than once, but I did go to school in Grenoble. And so you made early on some, some you know, unusual choices. You talked about how unusual it would have been for anyone to go to the United States. But prior to it, you had already spent a lot of time in France, mm -hmm. which also would have been a slightly unusual choice for someone living in Germany at that point, right? So you've already been a border crosser than before you actually came to the United yeah, States. Yeah, well, that has. I'm not too sure how exactly this is connected. But when my brother was the uh, my brother was the first one at the gymnasium, the high school, high school. who was all of a sudden. Uh, the, you see, you have to realize that the American occupation was replaced by the French occupation. And the French occupation had their main seat in Koblenz, which is the confluence of the Rhine and the Mosa and so on. And so one day, the secretary of the high school principal came to the house and said that there was the first opening for a German student to go to a French school in, in Koblenz. And that's, there was a huge yeah. uproar there because that was unheard of. There again, we were being mistreated, I mean, mostly in words. And then he got, went to this. This was obviously all free because we didn't have any money. And then not only there, that's where he met his future wife. And so that, that was the backbone also of the, of the French intrusion. And then the French also, they came and had to occupy two rooms in our house. That was, uh, we were obligated to do that. And that's where I learned how to play bridge. All right. So we know that you, <laughs> you learned piano, that you left literature. We have you cross the Atlantic twice. How did you end up in Texas? We haven't quite yet moved you across <clears> the <throat> United well, States to Texas. That, that was, uh, like most of these things are un, unusual. Um, I was at the university, the University of Michigan, and then I applied for jobs. And one of the lists, the top was Smith College. And then Ohio University came into focus because a former friend and student of mine at the University of Michigan, he was there and we were supposed to start the uh, translation comparative literature program at Ohio University was sponsored by Roma King, who was probably the best known Robert Browning 
uh, scholar. His, uh, he edited the 13 volumes, which are now in a special uh, library exhibition in Waco. And so then because that J. Michael Yates uh, came into the focus, but the other story was that I, the Professor Niels had pretty much condemned my dissertation. And then we had the defense, which was on a Saturday morning from 9.30 to 1 in Professor Warren's house, private house in the Japanese room. And uh, Professor uh, Warren had orchestrated this and put uh, Professor Niels in the middle on a big chair and all the others were on a couch around this. They were all together six people. I don't know why. And then at one point, I said, Professor Niels, this is exactly what I did right in the dissertation. And at this point, uh, um, Professor Niels says, well, I was just supporting your argument. And at that point, there was this huge laughter coming from Professor Warren. But the, sto the story is that the end of that uh, defense, Professor Niels offered me an assistant professor in the French department and unfortunately had signed the contract for Ohio University. Wow. Otherwise, I would have stayed at the University of Michigan. So that's, that's that story. And uh, then I went to Ohio University and built up their competitive literature and translation program. And then the UTD is another coincidence because two of my best students female students. One is Francoise Meltzer. She just, I mentioned that to um, Niels before. Uh, she wrote, uh, had just published the dark, dark Lens and she will be coming sometime to us. So then uh, uh, they both, she and another good student of mine, they applied to, uh, UT, uh, to UTD, yes. And there was Regina Kyle or Regina Kyle, as they said. And then uh, one day she called me and, and uh, I said, where did you get that phone number? And it was my private phone number. And she said, it's listed who is who in America. And so then she said, could you come down? And I said, no, I'm not interested in a job. And, uh, and she said, could you come down tomorrow? I said, no, I'm going on vacation. And then 10, day, ten days later from uh, Florida, I flew uh, to Dallas and uh, so when I got there the uh, everybody was very nice and I stayed for three days and what changed my mind was Dr. Clark and the three scientists at the time. So then you know we've been okay you've been learning more about your upbringing and the experiences in, in Germany during the war your passion for piano your interest in literature um, your move to the United States but now translation studies, because now that seems to all line up, in, in particular in the ways in which you understand translation mm -hmm. studies. I mean, for you, maybe that's a good way for us to begin. Translation studies is not just simply about translating words. No, that, that I think was greatly initiated and contributed by Austin Warren. He gave a translation workshop when I was at, at the University of Michigan, and... That's where 
I was very much interested and understood that translation is not just translating, but it is a renovation of the way we interpret literature and the arts. And that has become my anchor point for everything else I did thereafter. And it's very difficult sometimes when people say, well, what do you do in translation? You just go to the dictionary and translate a few words. My idea was coming from comparative literature that translation was going to re invent and revigorate the interpretation of literature and the verbal, visual, and musical arts. A lot of this comes from a musical training. And therefore, it would interconnect the various areas of human creativity. And that also, when I came first, this was supposed to happen with the support also of the sciences, because the three scientists I talked to, they fully understood this and were very much in favor of it. Uh, unfortunately, later on, it was not implemented. And I think today we have a chance to uh, reinvent the future and give the whole study of literature and the humanities a new vital direction so that our graduate students especially don't look so sad <laughs> <laughs> so what is the then you know if, if there's the the answer to th that can overcome their sadness what is the answer where does literature need to go the study of literature for the future well the study of literature for the future has to be conceived in terms of establishing not the text as an object, but the text as an interaction between the reader, the performer, and the text, whether it's visual, verbal, and music. And everything is on that dialogue, the interaction, and that's where I think the digital technology comes into focus. This is where you come full circle, having studied at a Gutenberg University, that you're thinking about printing and technology then, right? Yes, yes. But the fact is, that's why I, I am very much convinced and that we have to introduce, first of all, on the graduate level, our graduate students have to learn the computer languages. Uh, the undergraduate program of what's that, Myanmar? What is that called? That university, that college, M A Y R. That's one of the first undergraduate uh, institutions or colleges that are even on the undergraduate level introduce the students to the uh, digital conveniences. And I think that will happen and will be normal in 20, 30 years. And I think this doesn't come from one day to the next, but I think we should open the door in that direction. Now, if, if, if we, we could uh, all be back on campus next week and you could teach your perfect class, what would, that, what would you love to teach next week well, in what ways? If I had a, uh, an assistant to help me, I would teach, well... I would help you. No, you, you have nothing you to do, assistant. okay? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll volunteer. <laughs> what I yeah. would do is I would love to teach about how this, the humanities can be, can be developed in the future. And that would include the interaction of the arts. I would have to have some help sometimes from the visual arts. I use a lot of my musical 
training to show how one can read differently a text. The one that, that understood this was Cortassa. Cortassa wrote a book called Hapskatch. And that was the first major change in how we look at a literary text because Cortassa said, well, you can read it the way it was printed, but I also give you another way of reading the novel. And he starts, I believe, with chapter eight and then gives you another way of reading the novel. And what I think we need to have in the future is how to reconstruct, and I use the word there, how to perform a text and not how to speak about a text. I think that's the huge difference, and that gets students interested. Gets me interested, too. Because if I were to go to right now and giving a course on, uh, on Charles Baudelaire, okay, I give you all the background on Charles Baudelaire, everybody after 10 minutes will be asleep because they can push a button on the machine and have that much better than I could present it. But am I capable of, of, of showing how to read Correspondence, the Charles Baudelaire well-known poem? How can we read this? And we are now developing an app for Voyelle by Arthur Rimbaud, how to differently get students once again interested. And one of our dissertations, there were only two of those, this was Amy Simpson. She developed a digital app, how to get students re-entered re into an intelligent and exciting performance of the poem. And we did one presentation also when Defoe was still there with the international uh, school. There were 10 uh, high school students and uh, the parents came and then they showed how a poem can be looked at from different angles and how it can be recreated so that the students love to be involved in it. And when the parents left, they were at the beginning, they all looked at me. I told them what to expect. When they left, they didn't want to go. I think it's a different, different way of recreating the excitement of what the arts are. I do think right now is the time since we are in a moment of what we call disruption. And whenever you have disruption, mm -hmm. that's when you can jump. Yeah, I was in a moment mm -hmm. of disruption. That's how I got to the United States. Uh, that's how I, early on, the French occupation, you know, I played bridge with a couple of French people at night. Uh, and these are, these are moments of disruption, but uh, what you learn is to, uh, to adjust and realize what can be done and how do you change the future. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Rainer Schulte in the Translation Center, please visit translation.utdallas.edu. Also, be on the lookout for the Translation Center's new podcast, Translating the World with Rainer Schulte, which will be launched later this month and available on all podcast platforms. Be sure to tune in to our podcast next Sunday at 10 a.m. for the second episode of Portraits of World War II, featuring Professor Frederick Turner. See you there. <laughs>